And again, most people would stand there at 9 o'clock in the evening and say, I want to thank you very much. And they go off to some other life. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And we're going to try and give you know, the so that's the president saying in person to a rally he called fight or the country's finished and let's march to the capital but to do what we're tr going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country hi i'm paul mason a british journalist and author who's covered the emergence of the new far right globally and its interactions with trump and other business oligarchs. This is the first of a series of talks I'm going to give this year in the run-up to my new book, How to Stop Fascism, published by Alan Lane in May 2021. Well, the events at the United States Capitol on January 6th are still being investigated, and there's a lot of speculation about the relationship between the planning, the spontaneity, the different groups involved, lax or complicit law enforcement, and what, what are the real intentions of the Trump administration? It's led to responses on the left ranging from it was an attempted coup, jailed them all to for sedition, uh, to the assertion by some on the left that, a little bit like Baudrillard with the Iraq war, it was all for show and never really happened. A lot of this is being driven by confusions about the nature of the Trump administration, what fascism is, and whether the left can support state repression, and indeed what the left's project towards the capitalist state should be. While we, the journalists, try to get to the facts, it is important to realise at this moment, and I'm speaking on the 11th of January, at this moment the FBI, the NSA, and probably numerous foreign intelligence agencies will have a more or less complete picture of the communications on the day. They and the tech companies, who of course also employ private intelligence agencies, will be ahead of us. And without resorting to speculation, you have to read the available evidence and the response of senior politicians as a series of alarm calls, at least potentially signifying the threat of a coup was real. So in this lecture, I want to recap what we know about Trump, his strategy to stay in power, and measure that against a class analysis of Trump. And finally, talk about the left's theories of authoritarianism and fascism and the academic theories that interplay with them and sometimes critique those theories and why a lot of them don't actually explain what's happening and can lead to futile tactics. What happened on the 6th of January has to be situated in context. Trump knew there was a danger he could lose the election, but his biggest mobilising card in the autumn of 2020 was Black Lives Matter, the subsequent violence uh, unleashed by the police and right-wing militias when they attacked the BLM movement and its supporters. Basically, a whole bunch of white people, 
And not just white people, but some conservative Hispanic people saw BLM and realised there was a possibility that what W.E.B. Dubois called the wages of whiteness would go unpaid. In the autumn of 2020, Trump successfully stigmatised all active anti-racist movements and indeed all opposition as violent Antifa or Antifa, as we say here in Europe. And in turn, he repeatedly promised to designate Antifa as terrorist. And he then systematically associated Biden and Harris with socialism and BLM and Antifa. But he realised that wasn't going to win him the election. So he also directed the US Postal Service into a nationwide voter suppression operation to minimise the postal ballot, which traditionally goes Democrat. So long before the election itself, the strategy was clear. He had to mobilise frightened racists, including millions of non-voters. He had to delegitimise the postal votes. He had to build a mass movement prepared to activate the moment he lost the presidency to either, either force the Supreme Court or state legislatures or so-called faithless electors or, or ultimately the armed forces and very ultimately Mike Pence, the, the vice president, to intervene to overturn the election. That was always the plan. The plan, of course, was to scare people into voting for him, but if that didn't work, to mobilise people to, to, to stop the election being ratified. It is as clear as a bell and has been the theme, the recurrent theme, of everything Trump said, well, since the summer. Now, what built the movement was the coalescence of the MAGA movement together with the pre-existing militias and outright fascist groups with a much broader QAnon conspiracy theory, which itself was fed by the, the kind of tributary uh, streams of bullshit, you know, pandemic, anti-vax, etc. QAnon provides the Sorelian myth. Now, what do we mean by that? Georges Sorel, the French anarchist uh, turned reactionary nationalist in pre-1914 France, argued that mass movements, originally said the labour movement, but later nationalist movements, they need a mythology, not a rationale. And the, myth the mythology for Sorel is not just a story, but a story you are part of, a story that, that explains everything about your life, and that by doing things, you recreate the story over again. Now, remarkably, for for you know, sort of essays and books written more than 100 years ago. That perfectly describes what has happened with QAnon. It is co-created by its believers and it worked perfectly. What it says, well, there's a liberal cabal of paedophiles based in Hollywood and Washington among the political elite, brackets, there's a big anti-Semitic thing going on here as well, and it seeks eternal life by harvesting children's blood, and Trump is secretly at war with them and will soon launch a crackdown that puts them all into Guantanamo Bay. Incidentally, like all fascist conspiracy theories, this is a fantasy about what people want to happen. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propagandist, used to say, everything we, the Nazis, know about power, we were taught by the Jews. So, you know, we are just emulating what they did to us. And you could impute to these conspiraloons who support QAnon everything we know about how to govern America, we were taught by the Hollywood, Washington liberal elite. We're going to do the same to them as we 
fantasise that they do to us. So QAnon is a fantasy about how the right in America wants to rule, not how they are ruled. And unfortunately, millions of people have been drawn into thinking this way. And we now have lawmakers and media channels entirely dedicated to spreading this bullshit. The point is, QAnon was the radicaliser. Because it takes existing prejudices, say against black people or against anti-racists or democracy uh, or just outright fascism, but it massively foreshortens the timescales. So most modern fascists, as we'll see, are seeking a long-term project. It's a global ethnic civil war, and their strategy is to wait for it and prepare for it. Hence, in several countries, the so-called prepper movement as a political subculture. And likewise, most of the militias, the kind of Second Amendment folks, as Trump calls them, uh, in America, will say, we are peaceful until the moment they come for our Second Amendment rights, take our guns away. But QAnon says, nope, 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 it's coming before 20th January 2021. It's, it, it has to happen now. Trump's about to unleash the creek and the storm, the big thing. And that is why the FBI identified QAnon as a radicalizer. It's a speeder up and unifier of all violent fantasies about how American democracy ends. So we come to election night and Trump loses. I think we'll find what happens next was always the plan. They declared they were winning until, uh, we were winning until the false votes came in, till the steal happened. They created the narrative of the stolen election. There was uh, a surge of protests outside voting centers almost immediately and threats against election officials. The narrative of Stop the Steal began on the very night and was then fed by most sections of the Republican Party. Let's remember this. It's not just Trump saying the election was stolen and illegitimate, but almost all, at this point, are reputable members of the Republicans, with just 27 members of Congress acknowledging Biden's win by early December, so a month later. According to the monitoring group ACLED, in the Stop the Steal protest, what they found was that Usually throughout the year, armed militia presence at American demonstrations was about 2 or 3% of the, of the events themselves. In December, that spiked to 8%. 8. We don't know what it is now for January. Um, so the armed element grew remarkably. By the 3rd of December, quotes uh, ACLED, Street fighting had broken out at multiple demonstrations involving Proud Boys and others around the country, including North Carolina, New York, California and Washington, D.C. So while you've got an armed element, the violent element is, is, is largely, you know, it's not shooting, it's not kinetic, it's, it's, it's street fighting, it's punches, it's mace, it's batons, it's, it's uh, this kind of cosplay with, with, with body armour. But, meanwhile, there is a parallel operation to take executive control of the coercive state apparatus. And this is what those of us who are trying to construct a holistic picture of what's going on must focus on. It's not just the pyrotechnics on the streets. So what happens? 
Trump, immediately after the election, fires the Secretary of Defence and the Undersecretary and the civil servants who queue up to applaud them as they leave the building, they too are fired. He fires his cyber security chief. He fires senior Homeland Security directors. And he'd already signed an order giving himself the right to purge up to 90% of civil servants on political grounds. That is making most civil servants into de facto political appointees. And then, so that's, that's the first phase. He's clearing the decks for something. Then, 12th of December, he loses the Texas court case at the Supreme Court. 127 members of Congress signed up to that lawsuit. But once he loses it, his legal team falls apart. You get the, you get the famous Giuliani with his hair dye flowing and, and that crazy uh, Sidney Powell. They look ridiculous. Um, and you get the beginnings of an acknowledgement of Biden's victory from the GOP on Capitol Hill. But here's the problem with plebeian right-wing and fascist movements. They, they have a logic of their own. And once they were stripped of any hope of winning in the courts... The movement can only stop Biden becoming president by preventing or disrupting the confirmation process, the, the confirmation of the Electoral College vote on the 6th of Jan. And that becomes the focus. So, with hindsight, it looks to me like the 18th of December 2020 was the critical day because Trump holds an angry meeting with the craziest people he's got around him, Giuliani, Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell. And they discuss two courses of action. A, naming Powell, who is a full-blown conspiraloon, as a special counsel to investigate the stolen election. B, declare martial law. They do neither. Trump actually tweets that the reports about martial law being discussed were fake news. But press reports do put the idea out there. I think significantly, it was also on the 18th of December that Trump announced that the 6th of January Stop the Steel rally would take place. And he said, be there, it will be wild. So we don't know. I have no inside knowledge, but I think it is uh, a safe assumption that at that meeting they said, let's not appoint a special counsel, let's not declare martial law, let's go for the pinch point, which is Mike Pence and Congress certifying the vote. Now, in response to that 18th of December turning point, you get two interventions by senior military people. First, on the day, on the 18th, the Army Secretary and the Chief of Staff issue a statement saying there's no role for the military in the resolution of the election. And then on the 3rd of January, as we're moving towards crunch time, all 10 former living defence secretaries issue a clear warning against the involvement of the armed forces. So somebody in Washington is worried that something is going to trigger the armed forces being involved. And what? You don't know whether there's a plan or whether what happened on the 6th of January was what we, what we call stochastic terrorism or a stochastic riot. So in, in terrorism studies, stochastic terror is somebody puts out a call in the full knowledge that somewhere else, a completely random person, will commit violence as a result of it, but that the, the cause and effect cannot be traced. But, I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty hard to argue that it was stochastic you know, when you see that Trump is standing on a platform and behind him there is the Capitol and he says to, this, to his followers, let's march on it. There is a logic, though. 
if you can invade the capital, actually disrupt proceedings, seize key members of Congress or humiliatingly clap them into restraints, uh, you can you can certainly then pressure Pence, the VP, into refusing to sign the papers, or as was possible on the day, you can steal the evidence. You can steal the actual electoral ballots which were present in the Capitol at the time. Now, if you did that, you know, Mike Pence being marched around in, in, in speed cuffs would, I think, have triggered a federal military intervention, if only just to save him. It wouldn't be a military coup, but it would reopen the possibility of declaring martial law in D.C. itself. Remember, it's only the District of Columbia, uh, and, and Trump could have done that. During which, Trump could keep people on the streets and defy calls to relinquish power. Meanwhile, where are the Electoral College ballots? Where is Pence? Now, we don't know if Trump wanted to do that. It is pretty clear that in the minds of that group, which is seen surging up the steps, you know, fully armed in body armour, fully um, tooled up, they were going to do something. Now, is Trump crazy enough to think he could get away with that? I don't know. The people around him are, because as we will see, they have a lot to lose. The people on the streets, well, that's what they actually actively called for. They chanted fight for Trump. And if you look at what they've been writing on the channels, on Parler, what they said in Vox Pops, they thought that it was a summons to Act 1, Scene 1, of Civil War 2.0. And the people who did the business were hardened, armed and organised white supremacists, anti-Semites and fascists. Now, I think I agree uh, with the anti-fascist Spencer Sunshine that looking at the, uh, the footage, most of the people who found themselves surging into the Capitol were not fascists. They were plebeian, authoritarian, right-wing populist assholes, um, but they wandered around. Others clearly had a plan. And what it is for law enforcement, not for us, to find out is why they didn't do that plan. We've already seen that there are certain Congress people on the far right of the GOP were tweeting effectively a commentary on what was going on, saying Nancy Pelosi isn't here, she's somewhere else. As I say, that's for the law enforcement to find out. Politically, the fact remains, an attempt was made to disrupt the vote. And it could have triggered military intervention, but it didn't, above all, because Trump wanted to let the chaos reign. That, again, is what's emerging from the testimony of various police chiefs. They were denied permission for the most basic security measures. So this leads us to a question that I think we have to rapidly revise our answers to. What does Trump represent? And what is his project? All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Well, in 2016, it was fairly easy, though it took the liberal centre a long time to work it out and a lot of journalists. Trump came to power representing something we haven't had in the developed world for, a, for the whole neoliberal era, a fraction of the bourgeoisie. And I wrote about this in my book, Clear About Future, 
we held a seminar at Sydney University fairly early on in the Trump era. Uh, we called it the jokingly the general theory of Trump, trying to focus our minds on on what are the class forces that bring Trump to power and why. So in the neoliberal era, because profit was mainly channeled through the global finance system, there was what Karl Marx once called capitalist communism. So you know, the finance system ensures, in general, reward is commensurate with risk. There's a level playing field. Globalization is a win-win for the rich. And while you can game the rule book, nobody really wants to rip it up. Once neoliberalism breaks down after 2008, a fraction of the corporate elite emerges that doesn't want to play on a level playing field. They want to double down on privatisation, deregulation, fossil fuel burning, etc., but they want to pursue the neoliberal project primarily on a national or regional, not a global scale. That, in part, is what Brexit was about, breaking up the rules-based multilateral order, and it's what Trump's project was, trade protectionism, tax cuts, asset price inflation for the rich. I called it Thatcherism in one country back in 2016, and I think that that still is what informs the sort of anti-systemic faction of the global, and it is a global uh, faction of the elite. And if you look at the people who supported Trump initially, it's privately held capital, monopolistic capital, the casino bosses, the oligarchs, the hedge funders like Robert Mercer. It's the SME sector too, the the, the small town store that that thinks uh, that thinks you know uh, big finance is strangling them. I'm just like some of the people who supported the Nazis, to be honest. Um, it's the security and policing industry, and it's fossil fuels. And they create the project of neoliberal nationalism. Now, it's a bit of a head fuck because to us, um, for 40 years, neoliberalism has been essentially globalist. Uh, they take the remains of the libertarian right, or most of its followers, and they convert them overnight to authoritarianism. Just as the, the right-wing blogger Mencius Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin, uh, did in the mid-2000s, they become effectively monarchic authoritarians after 2007-8 because, as Peter Thiel says in his famous Cato Institute essay, um, democracy and, and economic freedom are not compatible in a period of crisis. Now, a lot of American capitalists uh, sign up to Trump once he's in power because... That's what you do. He's the president. He's in power. His project's there for four years. You adapt your business to it. So even people who were quite happy with globalism switch. There is one significant break from the neoliberal economic formula that Trump enacts. He, he gets the Fed to monetize America's debts so he could go on accumulating debt. And as he accumulates debt, that in turn uh, fuels a stock market boom. Uh, until the COVID epidemic hits. So what this is, uh, at its inception, is a debt-fueled, monetary policy-supported, right-wing, authoritarian, economic nationalist project. They give up trying to maintain a rules-based global order and revert to great power politics. Now, that's what it is. It's not fascism. But if you're looking for an economic basis for how it evolved, you have to also remember that an autarkic state-funded capitalism in Germany, in the form of the project of the so-called Hartsburg Front, 
of the right-wing populist parties that Hitler was on the edge of in 1931-32, well, that too was a kind of economically based bourgeois project that became radicalised because it didn't work. Hitler was allowed into power because having to try to do economic nationalism with a parliament and a constitution, it turned out easier to do it with a smashed up democracy and some concentration camps. So we have to allow for the fact that the Trump project itself radicalised. Why and with what objective though did the administration morph from its project of an isolationist, authoritarian, debt-fueled neoliberalism towards this current attempt to cling to power in what looks very like a coup. My suggestion, my answer, is first of all criminality. Numerous people, countless people, from the administration have been convicted of crimes. Stone, Flynn, Manafort, others... It's safe to assume Trump will try to pardon himself and his family because it's likely that criminal offences have taken place in office, either with regard to national security, foreign influence, or just outright graft. The big signal for me for the change in the nature of the Trump administration was the Republican convention last summer, which was held you know, against law and custom and practice inside the White House using uh, federal resources and it mainly featured Trump's deranged family. The offer to the isolationists and the mobsters and the hedge funds was now the second term will be a family dynasty. The, the enlightened monarchy originally called for by Yarvin in his, in, his, in his blog a decade and a half ago. It will be a, a family-run affair. There's a point to asking, when you look at that project, the second term, the family business... The, the, the kind of crooks in charge, what's its relation to capital? But that becomes less important than asking the question, what's its relation to capitalism? Because one of the hallmarks of the new right-wing authoritarian forms of power, Trump, Orban, Bolsonaro, Putin, Duterte, is this. It has to become unthinkable that they will ever leave office. And that's because of something positive. Because the radicalism of society, the pressing needs to confront climate change and biosecurity after COVID, and because of Black Lives Matter and Me Too and Fridays for the Future, all this means that if the authoritarians are not in power, you're going to have the end of the fossil fuel industry within a generation. You're going to have state ownership and control of the energy system. We're going to have smart cities planned and controlled democratically by people. You're going to see massive reductions in, in, in air travel. You're going, to be, you're going to see bans on deforestation. You're going to probably see healthcare for all everywhere after this COVID um, uh, epidemic. That's the logic, not of socialism, but of capitalism. What's left of capitalism is going green. It has to to survive. So the trajectory of this fraction of capital, just as in Germany in the 30s, I would argue, goes from the current system doesn't work, here's how we keep what we already have, to the radicalised version that says there can be no democratic transfer of power to non-oligarchic politicians, even ones as pro-capitalist and pro-police as Biden-Harris. I think for some parts of the GOP, 
not recognising the election was a tactic to delegitimise the Biden administration and prepare a new path for power in 2024. They would destabilise Joe. They would be on his case. They would be grandstanding in various Senate and congressional committees. But they didn't actually mean that they were they would wanted to overthrow the president. They went along with it metaphorically. But that is not true, I think. And it's, this is severely unfortunate. That is not true for many in the base. At the base... And this is where you really have to abandon all those rote-learned Marxist theories from the 1930s. The base is more or less completely autonomous from the interests of capital. The base is driven, as the Marxist psychiatrist Wilhelm Reich put it, by something much more powerful than loyalty to capital. It's driven by a fear of freedom. Their number one concern is BLM and the possibility of black liberation, and Me Too, and the possibility of women's liberation, not women's rights, women's liberation, from 40,000 years of male supremacy. They see the police, the thin blue line, with a license to murder black people, as the last line of defence, and lo, it is evaporating, under scrutiny. And so for them... The prospect of even a moderate liberal government ensuring the rule of law prevails, well, it's the end of the world. And their wider concerns are the end of the fossil fuel economy, the end of patriarchy, the end of structural racism, white privilege, even property rights. I've been monitoring the US far right for my book, and uh, what I noticed in the last quarter of 2020 was the rise of black pill narratives. So the red pill, of course, is you know, from the Matrix, when you wake up to the alternate reality and you realise that women oppress men and black people oppress, oppress white people and all the other crap that these guys believe. But the black pill is, is their code for when the far right know they're going to lose and they enter a hopeless situation and they contemplate suicide and oblivion, which, of course, is just what the Nazis did at the end of their regime. They said, Goebbels said... If we lose, we'll slam the door so hard history won't forget us. Um, and now even some of the anti-woke people, some of the kind of, they're non-violent, but they're just, you know, they're just painful people on their kind of perennial uh, anti-woke propaganda. Many of them are writing, you know, we've lost, woke is winning, uh, the, there's no way back. Uh, so this, this mood of million, millenarian endingness uh, is there on the American right, going right from the fascists through to the Trumpists, through to the anti-woke brigade. We're losing the black pill. I, I noticed, as I say, as it became clear Trump probably was going to lose democratically, that narrative rose. And I think that's what's driving the base, which is detached, to repeat, det largely detached from the, from the overt interests of the capitalists who put Trump there. The base is mass. 10 million new voters for Trump in 2020. 45% of Republican voters support the storming of the Capitol. QAnon is a mass delusion with millions of followers. And this was created on social media. It was created by the YouTube algorithm. It was created by Facebook, created by Twitter, and by outlets like Fox News and the rest. But most importantly, it was created through the presidency itself which became a major purveyor of disinformation. Does that mass base deserve to be called fascist? 
Unfortunately, I think its core is actively and consciously fascist. Uh, but just as with Hitler and Mussolini, a large part of its periphery is individuals drawn from the lower middle class, the unorganised working class, some rich people, middle America, which is large in the United States, a large social category, who have a reactionary ideology, but most importantly are ensnared in the alternative fact world of conspiracy. Since the Cold War, we've tended to separate conspiracy theories and fascism. So in the 50s, there were a lot of alien and UFO conspiracies, but not many neo-Nazis. But it's worth remembering that in the heyday of fascism in the 20s and 30s, especially in Germany, conspiracy theories were central to the rise of Nazism. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion created what Hannah Arendt called the lying world, the lying world of consistency in the mind of fascist mesmerised masses. They're attracted to anything, says Arendt, that is internally consistent and explains the world and gets rid of complexity from their lives. Now, one of the problems with classic Marxism, and let's remember the 20s and 30s were a battle between classic Marxism, both of the socialist and the communist kind, and fascism. One of the problems with this Marxism of this kind was that it tended com to completely underestimate the importance of these utopian, phantasmagorically, hermetically sealed ecosystems of lies that are in people's heads. Marxists tended to assume it could all be blown apart through class struggle uh, or economic reality. And Wilhelm Reich said, look, on one night in Berlin, the Nazis would rent a sport hall and rant about blood and soil. And the next night, we, the communists, would rent the same hall and we'd read out economic statistics to crowds of unemployed people who already knew capitalism was in crisis and needed no proof of it, but wanted a narrative and an answer, not an analysis. And the result of that misunderstanding tragically, was that the Marxists failed and the fascists succeeded. And I don't personally intend to be entering a uh, iron-barred, concrete, uh, bunkered space uh, from which I do not emerge. Uh, and so I you know, want to beat them. QAnon and the MAGA movement and the melange of race science and violent misogyny and anti-Semitism and anti-globalism and anti-wokeism has become a kind of sealed, impenetrable logic system that people co-create themselves. And the reason for this, as I wrote in my book, Clear Bright Future, is I think fundamentally because neoliberal ideology has collapsed and the neoliberal self is in crisis. But what emerges is not a similar kind of ideology. And the sociologist Karl Mannheim in the 20s observed this. When the basic spontaneous ideology of capitalism collapses, you don't get a spontaneous uh, replacement. You get what Mannheim called utopias. You get, uh, well, others have called them political religions. I, I don't like that term, but, but it's the idea that you get constructed artificial ideology systems that are temporary, that make no sense. And what has happened is during the last two years, I think since Unite the Right, but certainly in the last two years, and certainly under COVID, an unfortunately large number of Americans and Europeans, to be honest, have become prey to this new 
utopian, nonsensical bullshit ideology. And we, we who are fighting it, the worst thing we could do is deny it's happening or think like the communists did in Berlin in 1932, that it's all going to be solved by economics or economic statistics. Now, let's be clear. I am not saying, in saying this movement is autonomous from the needs of capital, I'm not saying it doesn't serve capital. It clearly does. I'm not saying either that this is a petty bourgeois movement representing the autonomous interests of the middle class. Because that's about as far as critical Marxists got in the 1930s. They said, look, fascism doesn't directly represent the capitalists. It represents the possibility of a middle class revolution. And we have to rethink a little bit about our understanding of the class structure. They were right. They did have to rethink, but not, but not just that. What I'm saying, as Wilhelm Reich and Erich Fromm, the two Marxist uh, psychologists in the 30s, said, this is a phenomenon rooted in deeper hierarchies than class, namely the family and racial supremacy, which, for all good Marxists know, precede capitalism. Certainly the family does, and certainly in America, chattel slavery precedes industrial capitalism, though sexism, racism, homophobia, white supremacy, nationalism all take a specific capitalist form. There can't be any denial of that. Now, we have to face up to things. There is a plebeian mass base for American fascism and Trump has chosen to lead it even though his own political project and modus operandi was not initially fascist in any classic sense. And even though there is scant support for fascism among the mainstream corporate elite at all. But let's understand the project of the actual fascists in America. If you read all the new right bullshit, you know, the kind of Alexander Dugin, these Tolkien length books uh, about their political philosophy, all drawn from Julius Evola uh, and, and, you know, Spengler and ultimately from Nietzsche. What they want is a global ethnic civil war that reverses history so that we reverse into a pre-modern state of ethnically pure pre-capitalist societies. And they're prepared to wait for the right moment. Theirs is a long-term project. That's why QAnon was so radicalizing, because QAnon said, we can't wait for that. A little bit, QAnon's a kind of Leninism of, of, um, or Jacobinism of what was otherwise a quite long-term, uh, in socialist terms, Bernsteinian program of eventual fascism. But what the fascists want for now is something different. Their project is to keep in power and put in power people like Trump, Orban, Bolsonaro, and to make it very difficult to remove them by democratic means because of the level of violence that stirs up. And then they operate in the space provided by Trump, Orban, Bolsonaro, Putin, and their facilitators in the media. Now, if you look at it like that, that the fascist project is to keep people like Trump in power, make it hard to remove them because of violence, and then operate in the space provided. I am sorry, it is very hard to make the case that that's not exactly what January the 6th was all about. We want to go back and we want to get this right because we're going to have somebody in there that should not be in there and our country will be destroyed and we're not going to stand for that. In the medium term, because of the size of the, these networked 
fascist non-hierarchical uh, movements. They have to be de-escalated, defused, dissolved. Um, they have to, we have to encourage them to move from fascism back to simple racism or from racism to tolerance. Uh, and I think this can be done. But in the short term, they have to be defeated because they nearly stopped the election being confirmed. They nearly stole the electoral ballot, the electoral college ballots. But if we defeat this coup, or series of coups, because it's not over, there is still a long constitutional route to power for the American far right, just as there was for Adolf Hitler after the Beer Hall Putsch, and that too has to be stopped. I want to turn now to some of the challenges all this poses for the left at the level of strategy and analysis. The classic Marxist definition of fascism, formulated by Georg Dimitrov in 1935 to justify the Popular Front, is, I'm sorry, pretty useless. Fascism, he says, is the open terrorist dictatorship, well it is that, of the most reactionary, most chauvinistic and most imperialist elements of finance capital. Now the reason they came up with that is because for about 12 years, they've been saying fascism and capitalism are just the same. Fascism is just the attack dog of capital. So to, to make an alliance uh, with the liberal capitalists, the communists had to come up with the idea that fascism only represents the worst elements, and, and not just of capitalism, but of finance capital. Fascism, says Dimitrov, is not a power standing above class, nor government of the petty bourgeoisie or the lumpen proletariat over finance capital. Fascism is the power of finance capital itself. Sorry, that's wrong. It was a polemical definition constructed to attack actually all other reasonable insights. Because fascism, both in Germany, Italy, Austria, Romania, did operate autonomously, from big and even from finance capital in the 30s. This realisation that fascism was not just a bit autonomous from class forces, but potentially totally autonomous, came at a very high price to the Italian and German labour movements and to Italian and German Marxists. Because it, ten it, it countermands one of the tenets of Marxism, which is that everything's rooted in class interest. But there is an equally Marxist or materialist explanation for why parties like Mussolini's PN, uh, PNF and Hitler's NSDAP could dictate to the elite, create new elites, set different agendas for the elites and even repress the elite's direct economic interests. That is, to reiterate, fascism is fear of freedom. It is a mass ideological and social phenomenon that is nearly always triggered by people seeing freedom close at hand. And my goodness, we have seen freedom close at hand in the form of BLM, in the form of Me Too, in the form of Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for the Future, in the form of the massive technological power that now lies in our hands if we can just prize the fingers of the tech giants off it. In the 20th century, the agents of freedom were the organised working class. In the 20, and, and of course, when they saw the organised working class nearly take power, of course, the, the, the petty bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie and the reactionaries and the aristocrats of Europe crapped themselves and embraced something that could stop that. But, you know, we, we don't have a workers' movement of the kind of the, of the interwar period, the great anti-fascist generation. We don't have that. In the 21st century, the possibility of freedom arises 
from all these plebeian mass networked opposition movements. And if you think about it, these movements are challenging something even more deeply rooted than exploitation. They're challenging gender oppression and structural racism. So when I hear people on the left say, the 6th of January events can't have been a coup because the American bourgeoisie doesn't need fascism. Well, well, they don't need fascism, that's true. And the working class is not on the brink of power, and that's also true. I just say to them, read some better books and study reality instead of the failed and discredited Marxism of the Comintern. January the 6th was an attempted coup in the sense that it was designed to trigger martial law and the, and the suspension of the transition to Biden. Right now, on Gab, and until this morning on Parler and the Chans, people are fantasising about something much bigger than 6th of January, the first act of a civil war. They want to do it. Some intend to do it. I'm really sorry to my American comrades and friends. This is... You can't duck this. You can't... You have to put aside most of the things until this danger is gone. What we need to do, and what remains to do, is to trace any chain of command or influence from Trump's inner circle to the Proud Boys, the militias and the ultra-right-wing Congress people who egged them on on the day. We see the leader of the Proud Boys whisper something, they head off. The question is, who did he speak to? Who was he speaking to before did commands come? So there's a command structure of the assault that needs to be investigated. But there's an equally interesting investigation why did the formal chain of command that should have deployed the National Guard break down? It's pretty clear that, that the, the request was, was, was overruled. And where did that come from? So we're going to be able to prove either that it was suggested or ordered by Trump. I, don't, I think that's the range of possibilities. And once you accept it was serious, you can see why so many people on the Republican right have moved to distance themselves from it. Because the GOP itself is not fascist, it's infiltrated by fascism, but it remains a tool of governance for a US constitutional crappy democracy. Uh, and, and a good tool of governance in many states that will always be Republican. If there's a barometer for what the actual right wing of finance capital wants, it's what Fox News says, or what Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas does. Both have distanced themselves from Trump. And you can see the beginnings there of a new right wing project around their constitutional authoritarianism. It's something, actually, that, I mean, Glenn Beck, Beck has kind of had his day, but when I was following uh, uh, Glenn Beck around the Midwest, in, it, just, after the, just after the Lehman Brothers crisis, it was fairly clear that his idea was a constitutional reactionary authoritarianism. Uh, and you can see how... Once Trump fails, that's the new enemy that the American working class and minorities are going to be up against. Now, there are people on the left saying the violence was mainly performative, so it can't have been a real coup attempt. Uh, I'm afraid that misses the point of, about Nazi and fascist violence. In the 30s and the 20s, it was often just as performative. Let me give you an example from my coming book. There's many of them. Italo Balbo. Mussolini's lieutenant in Ferrara. When his black shirts were banned from carrying clubs by the local police, 
They went to a workers' co-op, a fishing, a fish co-op. Um, they took, they stole one metre long salted codfish, and they carried those around the city, beating up leftists and trade unionists with dried fish. Uh, in a way, the, that violence, which which symbolically defied everything that was trying that the state was throwing at the fascists, was in in a way more effective than they've, they've been carrying clubs. That's Fascists have an ethos of violence. It's always performative, always symbolic, and it's an ethical norm for them. The violence is the end, not, not, not the means to an end. It's a form of self-expression, which is why so many people on Capitol Hill wanted to take selfies on the day. So what do we do? Well, there's an understandable reticence to strengthen the power of the state because it has too much power. But American constitutional democracy is close to broken because the Constitution wasn't designed for a position where a fraction of the bourgeoisie wants to use the Constitution to erode the rule of law and prevent the state having a monopoly of armed force. Not of guns, because everybody's allowed to carry guns, as we know, but of armed force. I can understand the Leninist position. The state is an arm of the bourgeoisie and we want to smash it. But... You know, if that's your position, you know, you know, what are you doing voting Democrat? What, why do you want to dictate tactics to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Ilan Omar? You, you're a Leninist. Um, but the interesting thing is, in the 20th century, faced with fascism, all Marxist parties who actually found themselves on the receiving, receiving end found that A, Antifa, anti-fascist violence, is not enough because it can never match fascist violence in its offensive, mobile, mercurial, unpredictable character. And B, you have to call on the state to de defend the rule of law. The German socialists, the socialists, not the communists, even had, had a militia trained in rifle drill by the police, because they controlled the police in the state of Prussia, which was big, and so they had a legal self-defence force. Oh, it came to nothing. It couldn't defend democracy without the state itself wanting to do so. Now, there may come a time when the state doesn't. And at, at that point, then it's, you are in, you know, even so social democrats will have to be revolutionaries. Even democrats would have to take to the streets. But we're not there. You can be sure that the ultra-left communist parties in the 20s and 30s did have policies of violent resistance, which was justified. But the more we read about them, and, and, and I've, I've been studying them now, you know, for, for the best part of a lifetime, um, there is no example of where they defeat fascism through a strategy of street resistance. In my book, How to Stop Fascism, I make a strong case that the third period, the so-called third period, when Stalin mandated a policy of class against class, identifying liberalism as the same as fascism and social democracy as the same as fascism, well, this was pretty decisive in allowing fascism to win. But all around us, we can see parts of the left making the same mistake. People equating Hillary Clinton with Trump. People saying the neoliberals, you know, the neoliberal liberals are just as bad as Trump. We've also got people saying, you know, we shouldn't delegitimize sedition or insurrection in case we too are branded seditious and, inter and, and insurrectionary. Well, let's cross that bridge when we come to it, comrades, because um, we're up against fascism. And if you do believe that we're up against a serious 
threat to democracy, there is, there's only one thing you can do, and that is defend it. Either we adopt a strategy of overthrowing the corporate elite and their state, and good luck with that, because you'll be up against 75 million armed Trump supporters plus liberal capitalism. Or we understand the divisions within the ruling class and that the space democracy gives us to organise the left, the labour movement and the minorities is vital and we defend what we have. Hannah Arendt described fascism as the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. That's literally what happened on the 6th of January. You've got Josh Hawley punching the air, Kimberly Guilfoyle doing her little dance, while ex-service nutjobs get themselves shot, storming the capital in the name of QAnon. The lessons of Europe in the 30s are the only thing that beats an alliance of the elite and the mob is an alliance of the centre and the left. And you may not like that, but that is what happened in the 30s in France and Spain, without an electoral alliance of the liberals, the left, progressive nationalists and communists, there would have been no progressive Spanish government to fight the Spanish Civil War and no popular front government to dissolve French fascism, which is what the popular front did by law. What they did in the process was not just win elections, they created a mass popular anti-fascist culture that then turned the tables in the whole struggle. Now in, a, in another lecture and in the book we'll go into this in some detail because I think there are fantastic lessons to learn from the popular front even though it ended in failure, even though it ended in betrayal above all by the communists themselves uh, who, who started to repress and suppress class struggle. It was a mass grassroots movement that came to despite the rigid party boundaries uh, of the left and liberalism and created something new that we haven't got either in America today or in Europe. It's still looking like the militias, maybe without Trump himself, will stage another big violent provocation, probably between the 17th and the 20th of January. The only thing I want people to take away from this is, between now and then, even if it's performative, it's real. Even if there's no major section of the elite that wants fascism, that doesn't mean fascism is impossible because you've got an autonomous mass movement with a crazy ideology, a crazy logic, and the opportunity is there for them. And we, the left, need to build from below a movement for democratic culture and values that owns democracy, that places our imprimatur, our left pro-social justice, pro-women's and black liberation stamp on what democracy means. No matter how cynical we are about the content of democracy under people like Clinton or Obama or Biden and Kamala Harris, we defend democracy, we extend democracy and we resist fascism. And to resist it, you have to understand it. And to understand it, you know, it's better to start from evidence than books written in the 1930s. No matter how heroic the people writing them were, the fact is the left got fascism wrong in the 1930s. The people who got it right, I would argue, include the Freudian Marxists who understood fascism's deep emotional roots in all class societies and in patriarchy. I think they include Gramsci, although he didn't go the whole way in his prison notebooks, he went a long way to saying that 
Fascism is a phenomenon that can only partially be explained in class terms. Uh, I also think Daniel Guerin, the, the anarchist, young anarchist, who went to Nazi Germany at the very beginning of the Hitler regime, and he basically says, look, the problem is fascism everywhere. It's deeply embedded in the emotional life of the declassed and disorganised middle class and some youth and some workers. It's not... The problem is not, you know, the Sturmabteilung and Hitler. The problem is millions of fascists. And if you get to a point where there's millions of fascists, you've already lost. The people who got it right actually also understood how to fight it. They said you fight it in people's heads. You fight fascism first and foremost in the logic, in the emotion, in the narrative space. Um, and yes, of course, you have to fight it physically. Uh, and that may be what it comes to. So that's it for now. For more on all this, please look out for my book, How to Stop Fascism, History, Ideology, Resistance, published by Alan Lane, May 2021. Visit my website, paulmason.org, and look out for me on Twitter, at Paul Mason News. But not parlour, because it's finished. <laughs>